Who Goes There is a classic story by John W. Campbell that shows mistrust, paranoia, among other emotions. This was the basis for two movies called The Thing. There is an audio version, and we'll look at that in a moment. Who Goes There is a classic science fiction short story which spawned three movie adaptations, The Thing from Another World, John Carpenter's The Thing, and The Recent Thing. But the story is the basis and the real classic behind those celluloid tales. This podcast will have some audiobook samples from a version from Rocket Ride Books, and we'll also hear from Rocket Ride's publisher, Anthony Rotolo. Let's begin. You know, this is very exciting. Uh, this is a story that goes back with me a long time, so I'm really glad it's uh, being reissued, um, you know, again. So it's uh, it's certainly one that has a, 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 an appeal. It goes back and spawned two movies, too, so obviously it's it's a, it's a key one. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's uh, it's been out there, but it's sort of been buried. And I, I've been using this metaphor as I talk to people about it that just like the creature at the center of all the action, uh, the story itself has been kind of frozen. It's been mm-hmm. buried in collections. Um, it's been obscured by the fact that it it goes. Its original name is Who Goes There, right? And that became the thing. Um, by John Carpenter. That's the most recent one from the 80s. And then the Howard Hawks film, The Thing from Another World in 1951. So there's a, you know, a huge fan base for these uh, movies. And they, and it's, you know, it's such an original story. But, you know, I would venture to guess that most uh, fans, you know, particularly the casual fans, but even some of the reading fans just don't have an idea that, that there's a story behind this mm-hmm. that they can get their hands on uh, because it's been again, under a different name. It was also written under a pen name by John W. Campbell, um, uh, who, who used a, a name, Don A. Stewart, which was a pen name. And uh, so it's been a little hard to, to uncover for, for those reasons, but we're getting the word out about it now, and uh, we hope to generate a lot of interest in this. How did you get the rights to the story? Well, I did some research, and uh, I was able to get in touch with the representative of the estate of John W. Campbell mm-hmm. and just negotiate the rights to it. Oh, good and, for you. Uh, they agreed to uh, let me do it in both print and audio. That's the other exciting part about this project is not only are we doing it in print, but the audio edition is going to be wonderful. The story has a full ensemble of characters. Uh, I've got a veteran stage actor doing the performance of it, and it's, it's just fantastic. So uh, fans are going to love it. It's a real dramatic presentation. It's it's going on about three hours worth of material on audio. So it's a it's a it's a good sized audio book. Now, actually, I have heard part of it, and uh, he is he's very good. Who who is the actor's name? Because the voice almost sounded familiar to me. Well, his name is Stephen Cooper, and he does a lot of voiceover work. Mm-hmm. You know, he almost sounds like uh, I think it's Don LaFontaine who did all the famous trailers. Yes, you know, that that deep. Uh, you know, thunder voice, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of that gravelly, smoky voice that uh, is perfect for movie trailers. And I chose his voice because it put me in mind, especially of kind of those masculine actors in the 50s, uh, the kind of men like uh, Kenneth Toby yeah. you know, in uh, the 1951 version of uh, The Thing from Another World. Yes, exactly. One of the bonuses, too, is you got William F. Nolan, you know, of course, famous writer, to do an intro to the book, too. Yeah, William F. Nolan, um, to remind your fans out there, uh, he's the creator of Logan's Run. Exactly. 
so fans know those movies and the books. He's written several Logan's books. He also uh, did the screenplay for Burnt Offerings and many, many other things. He's, he's uh, just a legendary horror writer, science fiction writer, and, and mystery writer. He holds awards in all those genres. Mm -hmm. And in 1978, uh, because he was successful with Logan's Run, MGM asked him to write a screen treatment for Who Goes There. And that's what we're re republishing now. Well, actually, it's never been published before. This is the cool. first time it's in print. It's, it's just a terrific, uh, very scary, cinematic, alternate take on the story. Mm -hmm. And, of course, fans know that John Carpenter came along, and uh, a few years later his idea got chosen uh, when they greenlit the production of it. Uh, but this is just a terrific version that fans of both Campbell and the Thing movies are going to greatly appreciate. Great. I'm glad it's uh, finally seen the light of day in some capacity, so that's great. When does the book uh, actually become available? It'll be available through rocketridebooks.com mm -hmm. as well as amazon.com. Okay. So it'll be easy to order online. That sounds great. That sounds like a great way to do it. That's fantastic. So uh, why this uh, why this particular story? Why did you choose this one? Well, you know, like you had said, I, I, I've been, I had become aware of it, um, and in my case, I only came aware of it of, of, uh, just a few years ago, which uh, goes to show that some fans are overlooking the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I started looking into it, I realized, like I mentioned before, that it's it's been obscured. You know, a lot of people don't know it's out there. You have to buy a, a large collection of John Campbell's work sometimes to get, get to this particular story. Right. But it's so important and so influential. You know, you think about it, the movie that was made in 1951, uh, that was the same year that The Day the Earth Stood Still came out, and of course, of course this spawned that whole golden age of sci-fi movies that we, we look back on now. Sure. Sure enough, you look at the opening titles, and you, you see John Campbell's name, you see that uh, that was a story that Howard Hawks had optioned in order to, to make that movie. So um, I think anything... Uh, that can be done now to raise awareness of John Campbell. And that's the other story here. You know, not, it, it's not just about getting awareness of who goes there. Mm -hmm. John W. Campbell is a towering figure in science fiction. He's, he's credited with being, you know, the father of modern sci-fi. He, he almost single-handedly created modern science fiction. You know, Isaac Asimov referred to him as the most powerful force in science fiction ever. And it was through his, his influence that we we had uh, Robert Heinlein and, and Asimov and uh, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, among others, because among Campbell's careers, he was not only a writer producing popular stories, but he mm -hmm. became an editor and he groomed all the talent that became the generation that, that shaped that golden age of science fiction. Chapter 3 Blair jumped in front of Conan to protect his precious find. No, just low forms of life. For Pete's sake, let me finish. You can't thaw higher forms of life and have them come too. Wait a moment now. Hold it. A fish can come to after freezing because it's so low a form of life that the individual cells of its body can revive, and that alone is enough to reestablish life. Any higher forms thawed out that way, you're dead. Though the individual cells revive, they die because there must be organization and cooperative effort to live. That cooperation cannot be reestablished. There is a sort of potential life in any uninjured, quick-frozen animal, but it can't, can't, under any circumstances, become active life in higher animals. The higher animals are too complex, too delicate. 
This is an intelligent creature as high in its evolution as we are in ours, perhaps higher. It is as dead as a frozen man would be. How do you know? demanded Conant, hefting the ice axe he had seized a moment before. Commander Gary laid a restraining hand on his heavy shoulder. Wait a minute, Conant. I want to get this straight. I agree that there is going to be no thawing of this thing if there is the remotest chance of its revival. I quite agree that it is much too unpleasant to have alive, but I had no idea there was the remotest possibility. Dr. Copper pulled his pipe from between his teeth and heaved his stocky, dark body from the bunk he had been sitting in. Blair's being technical. That's dead. As dead as the mammoths they find frozen in Siberia. Potential life is like atomic energy. There, but nobody can get it out. And it certainly won't release itself, except in rare cases, as rare as radium in the chemical analogy. We have all sorts of proof that things don't live after being frozen, not even fish, generally speaking. And no proof that higher animal life can under any circumstances. What's the point, Blair? The little biologist shook himself. The little ruff of hair standing out around his bald pate waved in righteous anger. The point is, he said in an injured tone, that the individual cells might show the characteristics they had in life if it is properly thawed. A man's muscle cells live many hours after he has died. Just because they live, and a few things like hair and fingernail cells still live, you wouldn't accuse a corpse of being a zombie or something. Now, if I thought this right, I may have a chance to determine what sort of world it's native to. We don't, and we can't know by any other means whether it came from Earth or Mars or Venus or from beyond the stars. And just because it looks unlike men, you don't have to accuse it of being evil or vicious or something. Maybe that expression on its face is its equivalent to a resignation to fate. White is the color of mourning to the Chinese. If men can have different customs, why can't a so different race have different understandings of facial expression? Chapter 4 Conan felt an unreasoning desire to pour the contents of the lamp's reservoir over the thing in its box and drop a cigarette into it. The three red eyes glared up at him sightlessly, the ruby eyeballs reflecting murky, smoky rays of light. He realized vaguely that he had been looking at them for a very long time, even vaguely understood that they were no longer sightless. But it did not seem of importance of no more importance than the labored, slow motion of the tentacular things that sprouted from the base of the scrawny, slowly pulsing neck. Conant picked up the pressure lamp and returned to his chair. He sat down, staring at the pages of mathematics before him. The clucking of the counter was strangely less disturbing, the rustle of the coals in the stove no longer distracting. The creak of the floorboards behind him didn't interrupt his thoughts as he went about his weekly report in automatic manner filling in columns of data and making brief summarizing notes. The creak of the floorboard sounded nearer. I would say he is the father of uh, modern science fiction because all the people he influenced, uh, you know, is still being felt to today. It's really amazing. So he's uh, certainly that. So a worthy uh, thing, and one of the things that you've also done is you produced a podcast called Masters of Sci-Fi and Horror, and your first edition is, of course, John W. Campbell. So what is that? kind of an offshoot of Rocket Ride that you're doing as well? Yeah, um, and you can find out more about that at rocketridebooks.com or mm -hmm. just simply by subscribing in iTunes. There you go. Uh, just search Masters of Sci-Fi and Horror. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a couple of episodes out, and I'm working on the third one. 
These are about John W. Campbell, again, to help generate that awareness, to promote the book, of course, but also just to recognize that, uh, you know, sci-fi and horror, sometimes we look at these as just some kind of pulp uh, genres, but, you know, fiction, uh, some, you know, some have said that fiction is the truth contained in a lie, and uh, good fiction, you know, speaks to real human issues, even if, in the case of sci-fi and horror, uh, the issues that it, it speaks to, where's the mask of the monster or the Martian? Uh, Rod Serling famously, you know, gave us the Twilight Zone. Yes. He cloaked issues like maybe the, the communist scare with Martians, you know, the monsters are, are, uh, are due on Maple Street, you know, that type of thing. Uh, you can really address real issues through fiction. As I surveyed the podcast space, I didn't necessarily see a lot of podcasts that were dealing with sci-fi and horror as literature. So that's what I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, an, an exciting development is that I'm, I'm now the, the deal hasn't been uh, uh, pen hasn't been put to paper, but I may be working with a, a science fiction writers association author who's putting together the the hundred uh, most important science fiction stories. Oh, nice! And that'll be a natural. Uh, thing for the podcast to to explore one by one all the titles and their significance in science fiction literature history. Well, that's exciting. And, uh, just quick hitters on every title. Yeah. And that will culminate in a book also. So that's what the podcast is about. Very, very cool. I like that. It is true. There isn't much on uh, on the literary side. I try to do my part. It's not one of my strengths, but uh, I do include it on the show, of course. But uh, it's uh, it's great that somebody is uh, kind of really concentrating on that because there is a, a need for that. There's a, a rich body of written science fiction that's out there. And just kind of bringing our awareness to John W. Campbell is a great step in the right direction for you. Well, thanks, uh, Tony. I, th I thank you for the opportunity to uh, tell uh, your listener base about all this. Um, I do have a page at your uh, uh, Ning Network. What is that called again, Tony? Would you help me with that? Well, it's scifitalk.com. We are part of Ning. Uh, so essentially they host my site, and it just gives me um, the ability to really do much more than I was on just a different hosting area. You know, we have videos now. Yeah, SciFiTalk.com is a great uh, sense of community. Yeah, we're trying. We're trying. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah, and, thank uh, you. Glad to be a, a part of that now. Well, so, thank you. Well, it's uh, it's kind of like uh, the way we're evolving and where we're going, but uh, it, it seemed like a natural step, and uh, I've just been very encouraged by the people that have been involved so far, and we're growing. You know, we, we're, we're not very large yet, but we're starting to get there, and uh, – you know, it's uh, it, every weekend. It seems like when people have free time, I, I get we get more people coming. So I've invited a few VIPs, and hopefully some of them will jump on board too. So it's going to take some time, but we're, we're there. What made you found uh, Rocket Ride? What made you develop that as a as a publisher? Well, you know, this is our flagship offering. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> we're starting from the ground up. Exactly. And uh, having been a, uh, a book designer in my career, okay, and, uh, having worked with small publishers. In my career, having come across a book that I'm interested in just out of pure passion, you know, that's always the best formula if you're going to start a business endeavor because I, hopefully I'm communicating my enthusiasm and I think it's contagious, you know, for, for uh, science fiction and horror fans that, mm -hmm. you know, I've got something really good to tell people about 
And so, yeah, really, who goes there, a.k.a. the thing, that, that's what spawned this whole endeavor. Great. And, and in short order, I've got some other things lined up. I, I should be working with William F. Nolan on another project later in this year. He has a character called Kincaid. Okay. We're going to be publishing uh, Kincaid, a case book. Okay. And this is for fans of the X-Files or Kolchak. Uh, this is a story of a, of a paranormal investigator that uh, combats the, you know, the things that go bump in the night. Nice. And uh, just a terrific character by a legendary sci-fi writer. Great. So good things are, are developing with, with uh, Rocket Ride Books. So would that be the next uh, project, you think? Yeah, that ought to be the next one if this, uh, just depending on the timing, uh, William F. Nolan, is he's in his 80s, but uh, busy with, uh, I think, like five different book projects right now. Amazing. So it's just a matter of timing before we get to that later this year. So there's that project and also that um, 100 top science fiction uh, titles that are, are in the short uh, term horizon. Mm -hmm. Now, that will, will you be publishing those titles or republishing? I'll be publishing uh, both of those, yes. Wow. So it's, it's going to be essentially a book on those titles. Is that what it's going to be? Yeah, it's one of those. It's sort of like one of those cornerstone books for your library where there you go. if you want a quick hit essay on, mm -hmm. let's say, Dune by Frank Herbert, you can you know, turn to that selection and you'll get like a thousand word essay on uh, that kind of breaks down its significance, mm -hmm. its place, its influence. And it'll, it'll treat all the top 100 uh, chosen in that book uh, in that manner. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Here's more sci-fi talk with Tony Tolado. Chapter 5 The dogs were quieter. There was a deadly seriousness in their low snarls. Taloned feet scratched at the hard-packed snow. Broken chains were clinking and tangling. Conant shifted abruptly, and Barkley could see what lay beyond. For a second he stood frozen. Then his breath went out in a gusty curse. The thing launched itself at Conant. The powerful arms of the man swung the ice axe flat side first at what might have been a hand. It scrunched horribly, and the tattered flesh ripped by a half-dozen savage huskies, leapt to its feet again. The red eyes blazed with an unearthly hatred, an unearthly, unkillable vitality. Barclay turned the fire extinguisher on it. The blinding, blistering stream of chemical spray confused it, baffled it, together with the savage attacks of the huskies, not for long afraid of anything that did or could live, held it at bay. So, essentially, are you going to have, for that project, are you going to be like, interviewing some of the authors and or people or people that are in science fiction that can comment on some of those works, especially when the author's no longer with us? That's, you know, that's, you're giving me ideas, Tony. So far, <laughs> what we've uh, discussed is, as, as we've uh, uh, just taken preliminary steps towards this is uh, having kind of a sub-series of the Masters of Sci-Fi and Horror podcast where mm -hmm. you get kind of like a one-minute quick hitter on different titles. You know, whether it's storm, stormship troopers or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Chapter 12 
Clark looked up from the galley stove as Van Wall, Barclay, McCready, and Benning came in, brushing the drift from their clothes. The other men jammed into the ad building continued studiously to do as they were doing, playing chess, poker, reading. Ralston was fixing a sledge on the table. Van and Norris had their heads together over magnetic data, while Harvey read tables in a low voice. Dr. Copper snored softly on the bunk. Gary was working with Dutton over a sheaf of radio messages on the corner of Dutton's bunk and a small fraction of the radio table. Conant was using most of the table for cosmic ray sheets. Quite plainly through the corridor, despite two closed doors, they could hear Kinner's voice. Clark banged a kettle onto the galley stove and beckoned McCready silently. The meteorologist went over to him. I, I don't mind the cooking so damn much, Clark said nervously. But isn't there some way to stop that bird? We all agreed that it would be safe to move him into Cosmo's house. Kinner? McCready nodded toward the door. I'm afraid not. I can dope him, I suppose, but we don't have an unlimited supply of morphia, and he's not in danger of losing his mind. Just hysterical. Well, we're in danger of losing ours. You've been out for an hour and a half. That's been going on steadily ever since. And it was going for two hours before. There's a limit, you know. Gary wandered over slowly, apologetically. For an instant, McCready caught the feral spark of fear, horror, in Clark's eyes, and knew at the same instant it was in his own. Gary, Gary or Copper, was certainly a monster. If you could stop that, I think it would be a sound policy, Mac. Gary spoke quietly. There are tensions enough in this room. We agreed that it would be safe for Kinner in there, because everyone else in camp is under constant eyeing. Gary shivered slightly. And try, try in God's name to find some test that will work. McCready sighed. Watched or unwatched, everyone's tense. Blair's jammed the trap so it won't open now. Says he's got food enough and keeps screaming, Go away, go away, you're monsters. I won't be absorbed, I won't. I'll tell men when they come, go away. So, we went away. There's no other test, Gary pleaded. McCready shrugged his shoulders. Copper was perfectly right. The serum test could be absolutely definitive if it hadn't been contaminated. But that's the only dog left, and he's fixed now. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is quite an effort, and uh, I certainly wish you the best of luck with this. Best way is rocketridebooks.com, and also you'll be able to get who goes there from Amazon, too. So, uh, and, you know, that's, that's awesome. Is there any chance you might be, you know, uh, essentially reprinting any other Campbell titles. Yes, you know, Campbell, um, he came of age as a, as a writer doing some of the early space opera pulp fiction. Yeah, right. He, he really hit his stride doing the more, you know, quote-unquote significant fiction when mm -hmm. he, he began to develop character-driven, uh, moody, atmospheric work. And the first of those is a story called Twilight. Twilight is uh, another possibility for us. I, that, that might be something um, 
that I'd consider producing an audio. I love the idea of audio because it's a that's a new frontier for John W. Campbell. Yeah, I think it so. That's Rocket Ride books uh, apart from some of the other editions that are out there. Yeah, I do like the uh, you know you have the audio and the and the printed version you know kind of available at the same time. I think that's great. So the best thing for folks to do is to just you know to come to my site, which we'll announce it, of course, mm-hmm. and also uh, I mean you can certainly post that in your folder and we'll highlight it. Uh, and also, <clears throat> excuse me, you can also go to rocketridebooks.com and get that information. Absolutely. Great. And and also at Amazon.com, since the, the print edition will be there. I'll, I'll probably be making the audiobook edition available at rocketridebooks.com exclusively in the beginning. That sounds like a good idea. Great. And I guess they would you would you uh, would they be available as a download or as a CD? I'd like to produce it as CD first. Um, mm-hmm. I'm considering putting it out as, a, as just simply a download as well. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at audible.com as a, uh, trying to work out a deal with them right now, but I'm, I've got to think that over carefully. I think that's a good idea because of iPods and things, and people love books on tape on iPods. So um, I strongly suggest you really consider that because that's, that's the way things are going. You know? So, um, you know, I mean, for me, that's the way I, that would be my preference is to download it that way. And this way I have it in my PC and I can put it on my iPod and take it anywhere I, I want to go. Yeah. The, 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 this iPod edition or CD audio edition, however you want to grab <laughs> it, it'll just be a real dramatic presentation of the, the story that listeners will enjoy. All right. Well, thank you uh, for being with us and certainly, you know, keep, uh, keep us updated on the, on the site and also have, you know, as far as our listeners, you should definitely check out rocketridebooks.com for all the information on this title, who goes there, and also what's coming up as well. Thank you, Tony. Now let's get started with the introduction. Rocket Ride Books presents Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, read by Steve Cooper. Introduction by William F. Nolan. Who Goes There was first printed on the pages of Astounding in the August 1938 issue under the byline of Don A. Stewart, a pen name taken directly from Campbell's first wife, Donna Stewart. By then, John W. Campbell had been writing galaxy-spanning science fiction sagas in the tradition of E. E. Smith for the better part of a decade, having achieved his first genre sale in 1930. His books would eventually include six published sci-fi novels and a host of shorter stories covering eight collections. In today's character-driven modern sci-fi market, most of the early Campbell fiction has become outdated. But Who Goes There remains an exception. It has taken on legendary status. When it was written in the 30s, Campbell had no idea that he had created a timeless genre classic. Its first major exposure can be credited to Raymond J. Healy and J. Francis McComas, who selected Campbell's story for book publication in their groundbreaking anthology, Adventures in Time and Space, from Random House in 1946. The first anthology to use the term science fiction was The Pocket Book of Science Fiction, edited by Don Wolheim in 1943, which contained another classic story by Stewart, titled Twilight. The year 1951 marked a new milestone in the history of Who Goes There? When the story reached the big screen as The Thing, a.k.a. The Thing from Another World. 
The film's producer, Howard Hawks, had optioned the motion picture rights from Campbell in the 1940s. It was a Hawks production from first frame to last, with the producer carefully monitoring director Christian Nyby. Severe plot changes were made, as the shape-changing alien is replaced by a Frankenstein-like monster. Actor James Arness played the role, becoming famous years later as Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. The Thing drew a heated response from die-hard sci-fi fans. They were not pleased with the Hawks' approach. Most theater audiences, however, found it chilling and suspenseful. Critical reaction was mixed. Editor-writer Phil Hardy, in Science Fiction, the Complete Film Scrapbook, called it one of the best sci-fi movies of all time. Neil Barron, on the other hand, in Anatomy of Wonder, dubbed it inept and cited stock horror elements. During the same year, 1951, Who Goes There became the title story in a collection of Campbell's best fiction from the mid to late 1930s, published by Shasta Press. That's only part of the introduction. You can get the entire introduction as well as the entire audiobook by downloading it at rocketridebooks.com. And now we'll hear chapters one and two complete here on a special sci-fi talk of Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. Chapter one. The place stank. A queer mingled stench that only the ice-buried cabins of an Antarctic camp know compounded of reeking human sweat and the heavy fish-oil stench of melted seal blubber. An overtone of liniment combated the musty smell of sweat and snow-drenched furs, the acrid odor of burnt cooking fat, and the animal, not unpleasant smell of dogs, diluted by time, hung in the air. Lingering odors of machine oil contrasted sharply with the taint of harness dressing and leather, yet somehow... Through all that reek of human beings and their associates, dogs, machines, and cooking, came another taint. It was a queer, neck-ruffling thing, a faintest suggestion of an odor alien among the smells of industry and life. And it was a life smell. But it came from the thing that lay bound with cord and tarpaulin on the table, dripping slowly, methodically, onto the heavy planks, dank and gaunt under the unshielded glare of the electric light. Blair, the little bald-pated biologist of the expedition, twitched nervously at the wrappings, exposing clear, dark ice beneath, and then pulling the tarpaulin back onto place restlessly. His little bird-like motions of suppressed eagerness danced his shadow across the fringe of dingy gray underwear hanging from the low ceiling, the equatorial fringe of stiff, graying hair around his naked skull, a comical halo about the shadow's head. Commander Gary brushed aside the lax legs of a suit of underwear and stepped toward the table. Slowly his eyes traced around the rings of men sardined into the administration building. His tall, stiff body straightened finally, and he nodded. Thirty-seven. All here. His voice was low, yet carried the clear authority of the commander by nature as well as by title. You know the outline of the story back of that find of the secondary pole expedition. I have been conferring with second-in-command McCready and Norris, as well as Blair and Dr. Copper. 
There is a difference of opinion, and because it involves the entire group, it is only just that the entire expedition personnel act on it. I am going to ask MacReady to give you the details of the story, because each of you has been too busy with his own work to follow closely the endeavors of the others. MacReady? Moving from the smoke-blued background, MacReady was a figure from some forgotten myth, a looming bronze statue that held life and walked. Six feet four inches he stood as he halted beside the table, and, with a characteristic glance upward to assure himself of room under the lower ceiling beam, straightened. His rough, clashingly orange, windproof jacket he still had on, yet on his huge frame it did not seem misplaced. Even here, four feet beneath the driftwind that droned across the Antarctic waste above the ceiling, the cold of the frozen continent leaked in and gave meaning to the harshness of the man. And he was bronze. His great red-bronze beard, the heavy hair that matched it, the gnarled, corded hands gripping, relaxing, gripping, relaxing on the table planks were bronze. Even the deep-sunken eyes beneath heavy brows were bronzed. Age-resisting endurance of the metal spoke in the cragged, heavy outlines of his face and the mellow tones of the heavy voice. Norris and Blair agree on one thing. That animal we found was not terrestrial in origin. Norris fears there may be danger in that. Blair says there is none. But I'll go back to how and why we found it. To all that was known before we came here, it appeared that this point was exactly over the south magnetic pole of Earth. The compass does point straight down here, as you all know. The more delicate instruments of the physicists, instruments especially designed for this expedition and its study of the magnetic pole, detected a secondary effect, a secondary, less powerful magnetic influence about 80 miles southwest of here. The secondary magnetic expedition went out to investigate it. There is no need for details. We found it. But it was not the huge meteorite or magnetic mountain Norris had expected to find. Iron ore is magnetic, of course. Iron more so. And certain special steels even more magnetic from the surface indications. The secondary pole we found was small. So small that the magnetic field it had was preposterous. No magnetic material conceivable could have that effect. Soundings through the ice indicated it was within 100 feet of the glacier surface. I think you should know the structure of the place. There is a broad plateau, a level sweep that runs more than 150 miles due south from the secondary station, Van Wall says. He didn't have time or fuel to fly farther, but it was running smoothly due south then. Right here, where that buried thing was, there is an ice-drowned mountain ridge a granite wall of unshakable strength that has dammed back the ice creeping from the south. And 400 miles due south is the South Polar Plateau. You have asked me at various times why it gets warmer here when the wind rises, as most of you know. As a meteorologist, I'd have staked my word that no wind could blow at minus 70 degrees, that no more than a five-mile wind could blow at minus 50, without causing warming due to friction with ground, snow, and ice, and the air itself. We camped there on the lip of that ice-drowned mountain range for twelve days. 
We dug out camp into the blue ice that formed the surface and escaped most of it. But for twelve consecutive days the wind blew at forty-five miles an hour. It went as high as forty-eight and fell to forty-one at times. The temperature was minus sixty-three degrees. It rose to minus sixty and fell to minus sixty-eight. It was meteorologically impossible, and it went on uninterruptedly for twelve days and twelve nights. Somewhere to the south, the frozen air of South Polar Plateau slides down from that 18,000-foot bowl, down a mountain pass, over a glacier, and starts north. There must be a funneling mountain chain that directs it, and sweeps it away for 400 miles to hit that bald plateau where we found the secondary pole, and 350 miles farther north reaches the Antarctic Ocean. It's been frozen there since Antarctica froze 20 million years ago, there never has been a thaw there. Twenty million years ago, Antarctica was beginning to freeze. We've investigated, thought, and built speculations. What we believe happened was about like this. Something came down out of space, a ship. We saw it there in the blue ice, a thing like a submarine without a conning tower or directive vanes, 280 feet long and 45 feet in diameter at its thickest. A Van Wall? Space? Yes, but I'll explain that better later. MacReady's steady voice went on. It came down from space, driven and lifted by forces men haven't discovered yet. And somehow, perhaps something went wrong then, it tangled with Earth's magnetic field. It came south here, out of control, probably, circling the magnetic pole. That's a savage country there. But when Antarctica was still freezing, it must have been a thousand times more savage. There must have been blizzard snow, as well as drift. New snow falling as the continent glaciated. The swirl there must have been particularly bad, the wind hurling a solid blanket of white over the lip of that now buried mountain. The ship struck solid granite head-on and cracked up. Not every one of the passengers in it was killed. But the ship must have been ruined, her driving mechanism locked. It tangled with Earth's field, Norris believes. No thing made by intelligent beings can tangle with the dead immensity of a planet's natural forces and survive. One of its passengers stepped out. The wind we saw there never fell below 41, and the temperature never rose above minus 60. Then, the wind must have been stronger and there was drift falling in a solid sheet. The thing was lost completely in ten paces. He paused for a moment, the deep, steady voice giving way to the drone of wind overhead, and the uneasy, malicious gurgling in the pipe of the galley stove. Drift. A drift wind was sweeping by overhead. Right now the snow picked up by the mumbling wind fled in level, blinding lines across the face of the buried camp. If a man stepped out of the tunnels that connected each of the camp buildings beneath the surface, he'd be lost in ten paces. Out there, the slim, black finger of the radio mast lifted three hundred feet into the air, and at its peak was the clear night sky, a sky of thin, whining wind rushing steadily from beyond to another beyond under the licking, curling mantle of the aurora. And off north, the horizon flamed with queer, angry colors of the midnight twilight. 
That was spring, 300 feet above Antarctica. At the surface, it was white death. Death of a needle-fingered cold driven before the wind, sucking heat from any warm thing. Cold, and the white mist of endless, everlasting drift, the fine, fine particles of licking snow that obscured all things. Kinner, the little scar-faced cook, winced. Five days ago he had stepped out to the surface to reach a cache of frozen beef. He had reached it, started back, and the drift wind leapt out of the south. Cold white death that streamed across the ground blinded him in twenty seconds. He stumbled down wildly in circles. It was half an hour before rope-guided men from below found him in the impenetrable murk. It was easy for a man, or a thing, to get lost in ten paces. And the drift wind then was probably more impenetrable than we know. McCready's voice snapped Kinner's mind back, back to the welcome, dank warmth of the ad building. The passenger of the ship wasn't prepared either, it appears. It froze within ten feet of the ship. We dug down to find the ship, and our tunnel happened to find the frozen animal. Barclay's ice axe struck its skull. When we saw what it was, Barclay went back to the tractor, started the fire up, and when the steam pressure built, sent a call for Blair and Dr. Copper. Barclay himself was sick then, stayed sick for three days, as a matter of fact. When Blair and Copper came, we cut out the animal in a block of ice, as you see, wrapped it and loaded it on the tractor for return here. We wanted to get into that ship. We reached the side and found the metal was something we didn't know. Our beryllium bronze non-magnetic tools wouldn't touch it. Barclay had some tool steel on the tractor, but that wouldn't scratch it either. We made reasonable tests, even tried some acid from the batteries with no results. They must have had a passivating process to make magnesium metal resist acid that way, and the alloy must have been at least 95% magnesium. But we had no way of guessing that, so when we spotted the barely opened locked door, we cut around it. There was clear, hard ice inside the lock, where we couldn't reach it. Through the little crack we could look in and see only metal and tools were in there. So we decided to loosen the ice with a bomb. We had deconite bombs and thermite. Thermite is the ice softener. Deconite might have shattered valuable things. Where the thermite's heat would just loosen the ice... Dr. Copper, Norris, and I placed a 25-pound thermite bomb, wired it, and took the connector up the tunnel to the surface, where Blair had the steam tractor waiting. A hundred yards the other side of that granite wall, we set off the thermite bomb. The magnesium metal of the ship caught, of course. The glow of the bomb flared and died. Then it began to flare again. We ran back to the tractor, and gradually the glare built up, from where we were, we could see the whole ice field illuminated from beneath with an unbearable light. The ship's shadow was a great, dark cone reaching off toward the north, where the twilight was just about gone. For a moment it lasted, and we counted three other shadow things that might have been other passengers frozen there. Then the ice was crashing down and against the ship. That's why I told you about that place. The wind sweeping down from the pole was at our backs. 
Steam and hydrogen flame were torn away in white ice fog. The flaming heat under the ice there was yanked away toward the Antarctic Ocean before it touched us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come back, even with the shelter of that granite ridge that stopped the light. Somehow, in the blinding inferno, we could see great hunched things, black bulks glowing even so. They shed even the furious incandescence of the magnesium for a time. Those must have been the engines we knew. Secrets going in blazing glory. Secrets that might have given man the planets. Mysterious things that could lift and hurl that ship and had soaked in the force of the Earth's magnetic field. I saw Norris's mouth move and ducked. I couldn't hear him. Insulation, something, gave way. All Earth's field they'd soaked up twenty million years before broke loose. The aura in the sky above licked down, and the whole plateau there was bathed in cold fire that blanketed vision. The ice axe in my hand got red hot and hissed on the ice. Metal buttons on my clothes burned into me, and a flash of electric blue seared upward from beyond the granite wall. Then the walls of ice crashed down on it. For an instant it squealed the way dry ice does when it's pressed between metal. We were blind and groping in the dark for hours while our eyes recovered. We found every coil within a mile was fused rubbish, the dynamo and every radio set, the earphones and speakers. If we hadn't had the steam tractor, we wouldn't have gotten over to the secondary camp. Van Wall flew in from Big Magnet at sunup, as you know. We came home as soon as possible. That is the history of... that... MacReady's great bronze beard gestured toward the thing on the table. Chapter 2 Blair stirred uneasily, his little bony fingers wriggling under the harsh light. Little brown freckles on his knuckles slid back and forth as the tendons under the skin twitched. He pulled aside a bit of the tarpaulin and looked impatiently at the dark, ice-bound thing inside. MacReady's big body straightened somewhat. He'd ridden the rocking, jarring steam tractor forty miles that day, pushing on to Big Magnet here. Even his calm will had been pressed by the anxiety to mix again with humans. It was lone and quiet out there in secondary camp, where a wolf wind howled down from the pole. Wolf wind howling in his sleep, winds droning and the evil, unspeakable face of that monster leering up as he'd first seen it through clear blue ice with a bronze ice axe buried in its skull. The giant meteorologist spoke again. The problem is them. Blair wants to examine the thing, thaw it out, and make micro-slides of its tissues and so forth. Norris doesn't believe that is safe, and Blair does. Dr. Copper agrees pretty much with Blair. Norris is a physicist, of course, not a biologist, but he makes a point I think we should all hear. Blair's described the microscopic life forms biologists find living, even in this cold and inhospitable place. They freeze every winter and thaw every summer for three months and live. The point Norris makes is they thaw and live again. There must have been microscopic life associated with this creature. There is with every living thing we know. And Norris is afraid that we may release a plague, 
some germ disease unknown to Earth, if we thaw those microscopic things that have been frozen there for twenty million years. Blair admits that such microlife might retain the power of living. Such unorganized things as individual cells can retain life for unknown periods when solidly frozen. The beast itself is as dead as those frozen mammoths they find in Siberia. Organized, highly developed life forms can't stand that treatment. But microlife could. Norris suggests that we may release some disease form that man, never having met it before, will be utterly defenseless against. Blair's answer is that there may be such still living germs, but that Norris has the case reversed. They are utterly non-immune to man. Our life chemistry probably, probably. The little biologist's head lifted in a quick bird-like motion. The halo of gray hair around his bald head ruffled as though angry. <laughs> One luck. I know, MacReady acknowledged. The thing is not earthly. It doesn't seem likely that it can have a life chemistry sufficiently like ours to make cross-infection remotely possible. I would say that there is no danger. MacReady looked toward Dr. Copper. The physician shook his head slowly. None whatever, he asserted confidently. Man cannot infect or be infected by germs that live in such comparatively close relatives as the snakes. And they are, I assure you, his clean-shaven face grimaced uneasily, much nearer to us than that. Vance Norris moved angrily. He was comparatively short in this gathering of big men, some five feet eight, and his stocky, powerful build tended to make him seem shorter. His black hair was crisp and hard, like short steel wires, and his eyes were the gray of fractured steel. If MacReady was a man of bronze, Norris was all steel. His movements, his thoughts, his whole bearing had the quick, hard impulse of steel spring. His nerves were steel, hard quick acting, swift corroding. He was decided on his point now, and he lashed out in its defense with a characteristic quick-clipped flow of words. Different chemistry be damned. That thing may be dead, or by God it may not, but I don't like it. Damn it, Blair, let them see the foul thing and decide for themselves whether they want that thing thought out in this camp. Thought out, by the way. That's got to be thawed out in one of the shacks tonight, if it is thawed out. Somebody... Who's watchman tonight? Magnetic... Oh, Conant. Cosmic rays tonight. Well, you get to sit up with that twenty-million-year-old mummy of his. Unwrap it, Blair. How the hell can they tell what they're buying if they can't see it? It may have a different chemistry. I don't know what else it has, but I know it has something I don't want. If you can judge by the look on its face... It isn't human, so maybe you can't. It was annoyed when it froze. Annoyed, in fact, is just about as close an approximation of the way it felt as crazy, mad, insane hatred. Neither one touches the subject. How the hell can these birds tell what they're voting on? They haven't seen those three red eyes and that blue hair like crawling worms. Crawling. Damn, it's crawling there in the ice right now. Nothing Earth ever spawned had the unutterable sublimation of devastating wrath that thing let loose on its face when it looked around this frozen desolation twenty million years ago. Mad? It was mad clear through, searing, blistering mad. 
Hell, I've had bad dreams ever since I looked at those three red eyes. Nightmares. Dreaming the thing thawed out and came to life. That it wasn't dead or even wholly unconscious all those twenty million years, but just slowed, waiting, waiting. You'll dream, too, while that damned thing that Earth wouldn't own is dripping, dripping in the Cosmos house tonight. And Conan? Norris whipped toward the cosmic ray specialist. Won't you have fun sitting up all night in the quiet, wind whining above, and that thing dripping? He stopped for a moment and looked around. I know, that's not science, but this is. It's psychology. You'll have nightmares for a year to come. Every night since I looked at that thing, I've had them. That's why I hate it. Sure I do. And don't want it around. Put it back where it came from and let it freeze for another twenty million years. I had some swell nightmares that it wasn't made like we are, which is obvious, but of a different kind of flesh that it can really control, that it can change its shape and look like a man and wait to kill and eat. That's not a logical argument. I know it isn't. The thing isn't Earth logic anyway. Maybe it has an alien body chemistry, and maybe its bugs do have a different body chemistry. A germ might not stand that, but Blair and Copper howl about a virus. That's just an enzyme molecule, you said. That wouldn't need anything but a protein molecule of anybody to work on. And how are you so sure that of the million varieties of microscopic life it may have, none of them are dangerous? How about diseases like hydrophobia, rabies, that attacks any warm-blooded creature, whatever its body chemistry may be, and parrot fever? Have you a body like a parrot, Blair? And plain rot, gangrene, necrosis, do you want? That isn't choosy about body chemistry. Blair looked up from his puttering long enough to meet Norris's angry gray eyes for an instant. So far, the only thing you have said this thing gave off that was catching was dreams. I'll go so far as to admit that. An impish, slightly malignant grin crossed the little man's seamed face. I had some, too. So, it's dream-infectious, no doubt an exceedingly dangerous malady. So far as other things go, you have a badly mistaken idea about viruses. In the first place, nobody has shown that the enzyme molecule theory, and that alone, explains them. And in the second place, when you catch tobacco mosaic or wheat rust, let me know. The wheat plant is a lot nearer your body chemistry than this other world creature is. And your rabies is limited, strictly limited. You can't get it from, nor give it to, a wheat plant or a fish, which is a collateral descendant of a common ancestor of yours, which this, Norris, is not. Blair nodded pleasantly toward the tarpaulin bulk on the table. Well, thaw the damned thing in a tub of formalin if you must thaw it. I've suggested that. And I've said that there would be no sense in it. You can't compromise. Why did you and Commander Gary come down here to study magnetism? Why weren't you content to stay at home? There's magnetic force enough in New York. I could no more study the life this thing once had from a formalin-pickled sample than you could get the information you wanted back in New York. And, if this one is so treated, never in all time to come can there be a duplicate. The race it came from must have passed away in the twenty million years it lay frozen, so that even if it came from Mars then, we'd never find its like. And the ship is gone. There is only one way to do this, and that is the best possible way. It must be thawed slowly, carefully, and not in formalin. Commander Gary stood forward again, and Norris stepped back, muttering angrily. I think Blair is right, gentlemen. 
What do you say? Conant grunted. It sounds right to us, I think. Only perhaps he ought to stand watch over it while it's thawing. He grinned ruefully, brushing a stray lock of ripe cherry hair back from his forehead. Swell idea, in fact, if he sits up with his jolly little corpse. Gary smiled slightly. A general chuckle of agreement rippled over the group. I should think any ghost it may have had would have starved to death if it hung around here that long, Conant, Gary suggested. And you look capable of taking care of it. Iron Man Conant ought to be able to take out any opposing players still. Conant shook himself uneasily. I'm not worried about ghosts. Let's see that thing. I... Eagerly, Blair was stripping back the ropes. A single throw of the tarpaulin revealed the thing. The ice had melted somewhat in the heat of the room, and it was clear and blue as thick, good glass. It shone wet and sleek under the harsh light of the unshielded globe above. The room stiffened abruptly. It was face up there on the plain, greasy planks of the table. The broken half of the bronze ice axe was still buried in the queer skull. Three mad, hate-filled eyes blazed up with a living fire, bright as fresh-spilled blood, from a face ringed with a writhing, loathsome nest of worms, blue, mobile worms that crawled where hair should grow. Van Wall, six feet and two hundred pounds of ice-nerved pilot, gave a queer, strangled gasp and butted, stumbled his way out to the corridor. Half the company broke for the doors, the others stumbled away from the table. MacReady stood at one end of the table watching them, his great body planted solid on his powerful legs. Norris, from the opposite end, glowered at the thing with smoldering heat. Outside the door, Gary was talking with half a dozen of the men at once. Blair had a tack hammer. The ice that cased the thing schluffed crisply under its steel claw, as it peeled from the thing it had cased for 20,000, thousand years. This is Tony Tolado.